If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in the book of Esther, continuing our series of unlikely heroes. My name is Kevin Barra, and I'm the youth pastor here at Grace Bible Church, and it is um, exciting to be here with you. The book of Esther answers the question that I think a lot of us have, which is this, what in the world, God, are you doing? My wife often says things seem to fall into my lap, and two stories really communicate this best. It was in one in 2004 and the other in 2005. Uh, the summer of 2004, I was just completing my eligibility of collegiate running, and a friend of mine walks over to me, and I was actually training for the Olympic trials in Sacramento that summer, and a friend of mine walks over to me and says, hey, do you want to go to Park City, Utah? Now, this man was Paul Morrison, and he had just completed uh, his years of collegiate running as well. He had previously run at Princeton University, uh, run for three years, gotten injured, and had one year of eligibility, and so transferred to my school. And the Ivy League had a program at that point in time where they forked over a whole bunch of cash to prospective Olympic athletes so they, they could train, they could go to different locations to train. And The Ivy League wanted Paul Morrison to go to Park City, Utah to train in the mountains at altitude, and they were going to pay his entire way. And Paul said to them, look, I would love to go. That would be really fun. Uh, I'd love to take your money. But I don't want to train by myself for the Olympics. I mean, I can't go by myself and and live up there. But if if you will pay the way for my friend Kevin, uh, he will gladly go with me and and enjoy the trip. And, uh, And so he... They bought it. And so, and so they paid my way and they pull, paid his way. And so early May, we jumped into his car and we make the long trek to Park City, Utah. And we arrived to the uh, resort that we were staying at. It was called Black Bear Lodge. Uh, not too long after we stayed there, I was watching a show uh, communicating the best um, resorts to stay in in Utah. And Black Bear Lodge was across the street from the best one. <laughs> it was great. Uh, actually, it was really nice. It wasn't, it wasn't cruddy. So we walk into our, to this beautiful lodge, and uh, it's a beautiful, huge living room, three bedrooms, each bedroom equipped with a black bearskin rug on each one of them, just in case. As well, uh, we had a, a patio, beautiful patio, with a huge hot tub to which a guy was paid daily to come and make sure that the waters were at the right temperatures, um, the chemicals were correct. And I look at this, I'm going, what is going on? What, what is... This is ridiculous. Um, not only that, we came to find out soon after that that Nike um, had a, a, a team that they were training to, to make for several Olympic hopefuls, and they were also staying in the same lodge that we were. And Nike in 2004 basically had money to blow, and so we became friends with those guys quickly. And <laughs> and uh, Alberto Salazar, who was a great runner in the 80s and early 90s, he was training this team. And he would bring masseuses in uh, to give all those guys massages. And he was like, hey, why don't you just come in and get massages with us? And we're like, well, okay, you know, <laughs> twist my arm. And, and so we, we got massages with them. Not only that, they paid for us to go to several, um, several trips to run at several races, paid for several cars uh, so that we could travel at those different races. And when it came to the Olympic trials, they picked up the tab for my room. I mean, my wife rightly says, sometimes, Kevin, just things just fall into your lap. Um, Secondly, it was in 2005, uh, long after the Olympic trials. I didn't make the team. Sorry, sad story ended. Uh, but I didn't make the team. But uh, in 2005, I had been spending the years of 2004, 2005 working uh, in a ministry with a church that I'd gone to in college. And 2005 was rolling to a close, and I needed something else, uh, the next job, the next step. 
And I, I did not know what I was going to do. I knew that I was engaged to my now wife, Hillary, and I knew that I needed to come to College Station, Texas, but I knew no one in College Station, Texas. About that time, um, my boss gets a, uh, an email from Brian Fisher asking if there's anyone interested in youth ministry. She quickly passes that information on to me. Um, I interview with Chip and Debbie Howard and Zach Nigliazzo, the previous youth pastor here, and got a job. Uh, you know, it's easy to look at those circumstances in my life and say, what amazing coincidence, what great fortune. But as Christians, we don't believe in chance, happenstance, or circumstance. We believe in God's providence. Okay, that's the best rhyme I got. We don't believe in chance, happenstance, or circumstance. We believe that God is divinely orchestrating events to carry out his purposes in this world. Um, Providence is defined as this, divine guidance or care. God's power sustaining and guiding human destiny. We don't believe in chance. We believe that God is divinely orchestrating the events of the world to carry out his purposes in the world. Now, what's interesting in the book of Esther, as we're going to look at it this morning, um, God's name is not even mentioned anywhere in the book. It's a strange absence for a book of the Bible. Uh, A strange omission. Uh, Charles Swindoll, writing this, um, his biography of the life of Esther in his series, Great Lives, says this. God's presence is not as intriguing as his absence. Who has not longed for a word from God, searched for a glimpse of his power, or yearned for the reassurance of his presence, only to feel that he seems absent from the moment, distant, preoccupied, maybe even unconcerned. Yet later we realize how very present he was all along. As we look at the story of the life of Esther and at the events of the book of Esther, here is what's clear. Although God is not mentioned by name, his fingerprints are shown throughout the entire story. What's great about this is that God's providence shows us three things that we're going to look at today. Firstly, it shows us that this, that God is aware of the events of the world. I'm not going to read every passage. I'm going to give you a lot of story of what's going on. The book of Esther opens with a historical account. Um, you can look at it. It's King Asusaris. We know from history that actually the name of that king is uh, commonly known as Xerxes. Now, he was the Persian emperor. He ruled from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces. And we know that he was a king of great power, of great stature. But we also know this, that during this point in time, more than likely, he was preparing for his great war against the Greeks. You're familiar with the Battle of Thermopylae when the great 300 stood against the powerful Xerxes. That is this king. And more than likely, he is using this period of time, throwing this enormous banquet for over 180 days to prepare for war to attack the Greeks. He was seeking revenge. Uh, Not too long earlier, his father had lost to the Greeks in the Battle of Marathon. And so Xerxes is using this time period, over 180 days, to display the glory of his power. You can read it. He has beautiful marble sculptures and beautiful wall hangings and feasting going on for over 180 days. It begins with a banquet, but then quickly it turns um, to a, a critical moment that allows Esther to pop onto the scene, and that is the banishment of his wife. While he's throwing this huge, beautiful banquet, he is displaying the glory of everything that he owns, but he doesn't stop with simply his possessions. He also 
decides to display the glory of his wife. In Esther chapter 1, verse 10, it says, On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, you can interpret that how you want, he commanded several of his eunuchs who served in the presence of, of King Xerxes to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and princes, for she was beautiful. Now, some commentators have suggested that he asked Vashi to come wearing only her crown. We're not sure what exactly the request is, but here's the key part on this. She refuses the king's request. As the wife of the king, you could not do this. And so the whole king's court kind of goes into an uproar, and they're thinking to themselves, what can we do with Queen Vashti? We've got to get her out of this, because otherwise all the women will rebel against their husbands, and our lives will be miserable, so let's get rid of her. And so what they do is they develop a plan to get rid of her. They send out information to every province that says, man, you are the head of your household, and women can never deny you anything. And it's said and done. That's the end of chapter 1. The beginning of chapter 2, more than likely after he had banished his wife, he goes to war against the Greeks. And there's the great battle of Thermopylae in which King Xerxes lost thousands of lives. He actually defeated the Greeks. They lost that war, by the way. But he continued along um, all the way until Salmis in which he lost the battle there. And more than likely, chapter 2 intros with Xerxes' trek back to his home in Susa, defeated and lost. Chapter 2, verse 1 says that after these things, that's probably these battles in, against Greece, the king Xerxes, um, he, he had remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. And he was sad. He was sad. He was lonely. His wife was gone. He had banished her. He was home from war after getting defeated. And he's thinking to himself, now I have no one to cuddle with. Now I have no one to help me feel better. And so the attendants around him decide to get this plan together. They say, okay, you're king. You're powerful. You can do whatever you want. So here's what we're going to do. Verse 2. Of chapter 2, then the king's attendants who served him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king. Let the king appoint overseers in all the provinces of the kingdom. They may gather together every beautiful young virgin in the city, to the citadel of Susa, to the harem, in the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let their cosmetics be given to them. Here's what is going to happen next a beauty contest. They said, you don't have a wife, we'll get you a new one, king, don't worry about it. And here's what we'll do, we'll hire people to go all over the empire to find the most beautiful women out there, and we'll put them through a year of cosmetic treatments. And after we put them through a year of liposuction and all those different things, we will bring all of those women to you, and you will have your choice of any woman that you want. It sounds like a great situation, so the king agrees. And in all of this, you see that God seems silent in these world events. But listen, God knows what is going on. He is actively aware of all these events transpiring, and although he is silent, he is not absent. We get the next character that pops up, is this. The second point is this, that God is aware of your events. So we, we find our hero, our unlikely hero, Esther, soon into this. Chapter 2, verse 7 she basically what happened is Esther was brought up by a man named Mordecai. 
Chapter 2, verse 7, Mordecai was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had no father or mother. Now the young lady was beautiful in form and face, and when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as, her, as his own daughter. Verse 8, so it came that when he commanded, when the command and the decree of the king were heard, and many young ladies were gathered to the citadel of Susa into the custody of Haggai, that Esther was taken to the king's palace into the custody of Haggai, who was in charge of women. See, two dramatic things happened in the life of Esther, even before we hear anything else about her. One is this. Her parents died when she was very young. Tragedy. I think there are a few things harder to, to face in life than tragedy. This year, as, a, as being a pastor here at Grace, um, I've seen more deaths of people that I know than any other time in my life. Even most recently with uh, David Siobhan. Death is the hardest, one of the hardest things that we face in life. And it's when death comes that many questions come into our mind. God, what are you doing? God, what is happening? But secondly, she is ushered into the care of Haggai and is being prepared for one night with the king to a tyrant's bed. Now, all of us would think that, oh, she's going to be a princess. It's going to be great. But she realized that he just disposed his previous wife because she didn't do what he wanted her to do. Her future was not certain. Although she would be queen, she could be disposed in a moment. And we don't even know if she's going to be queen. All that she has at this moment is that she's going to be ushered into the harem. She's got one night with the king. Who knows what will happen in that one night? She may spend one night and then be thrown off to the side. She doesn't know what is going on in her life. She has a tragic beginning. She has the hope of a tyrant's bed. You see, God allows circumstances in our lives that we don't fully understand. And and sometimes, he doesn't give us the answer immediately. In fact, I would say most times. But here's what we can be confident in, number three. God is aware But God is always on time and in control of those circumstances. Even if we don't see what is going on, even if we don't fully understand the consequences of what is going to happen, we can be confident in this. God will be on time. Two verses for this. Galatians 4. But when the fullness of time came, when the time was right, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under law, so that He might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Jesus came at just the right moment. But not only did Jesus come at the right moment. Secondly, this, from the book of Acts. Acts 17.26 And He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, they would seek God. Yet perhaps they might grope for Him and find Him, though He is not far from each one of us. God is orchestrating the events of Esther's life. And even though she is not clear as to why she's in this environment, she can be confident that God has not forgotten her. God uses these events of our life purposefully. Even though we are in the midst of a fog, God is orchestrating these events purposefully. And I would say we can bank that God is doing three things in this moment that I would call the wilderness. He's doing these three things. What is God doing? He's preparing people. 
He is positioning people, and he is releasing people to perform his purposes. In those moments of uncertainty, when we don't know what God is doing, we can be confident of these three things. God is preparing, God is positioning, and God is going to release someone to perform his purposes in the world. You know, there's no success in life without preparation. God knows this. Henry Hartman says, success always comes when preparation meets opportunity. Urban Meyer, former head coach of the University of Florida Gators, says, I have not, I've yet to be in a game where luck was involved. Well-prepared players make plays. I've yet to be in a game where the most prepared team did not win. So what is God's preparation process for us? Unfortunately, it often comes through trial. Wilderness. For Esther, no doubt she had endless questions to God. Why have you allowed my parents to die? Why am I at the mercy, am I at the mercy of this tyrant? James 1, 2 through 4 says this, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. A.W. Tozer says, God rarely uses a man until he hurts him deeply. In these times in the wilderness, in these times of uncertainty, God is preparing you. But why would God allow the trial? Why would God allow all of this pain around us? I, I would say this. There are few rocks harder to break than the human heart. It takes time to carve the character of Christ into the hearts of men. For some, the pain of the past and the uncertainty of the present can cause the heart to harden. But the same sun that hardens the clay melts the wax. For those who yield to God's will, their hearts become soft and supple material, ready to be used and molded by the Master. See, God allows trials in our life really to produce two things within us. First is dependence, and secondly is strength. Dependence as we see our weaknesses, though we don't have control of the situation. We don't know what God is doing. But secondly, strength as we see God provide in the midst. We see this in the life of Moses. Forty years in the wilderness, lost, not knowing what he was going to do, watching sheep. Until finally he was called into God's service. We see this in the life of David. Thirty years of preparation. You remember, he was alone in the field watching sheep when Samuel came to anoint him king. His dad's like, uh, these are all my sons. And they're like, Samuel's like, is there not another one? Oh, David. But dude's watching sheep. I mean, forgotten by his father, belittled by brothers. You remember when David went to the battle lines bringing cheese and goodies to his brothers. His brother said to him, what are you doing here, David? You just came to watch the battle. Years of being chased by a crazed king in the wilderness, all for 30 years before he would ever enter the throne. We see this in the life of Elijah. He spent three years by the brook of Cherith before he's called to battle the prophets of Baal. Paul spent three years in Arabia alone. And the example par excellence, Jesus Christ himself. 30 years under his parents for three years of ministry. Hebrews 5.8 says, Although he was a son, he learned obedience for the things which he suffered. See, God is preparing you in the wilderness. And you may not understand exactly what God is opening up, but you can be confident in this, that God has not forgotten you, that God is working on you for that moment. But not only is God preparing you, God is positioning you. We see this in the life of Joseph. 
Um, He was sold as a slave by his brothers after he was betrayed by them. He was left forgotten in jail until the moment came when he interpreted a dream and was brought to be second in command. You see, God has not forgotten any of us. He is preparing. He is positioning. And at the right moment, he will release you to perform his purposes. But here's the problem. That time in the wilderness is hard. That time of uncertainty when we don't know what is ahead, it is very, very hard. I know for me personally, um, I worked here for three years. I went away for a year and I worked in Florida. I did, um, my wife who had graduated veterinary school was doing a veterinary internship in Florida. And while we were in Florida, I was thinking to myself, hey, I got a job in College Station. I will get a job in Florida. No issue. And so I start applying just anywhere for jobs. I apply at Starbucks. I apply at Barnes and Nobles. For three months, I couldn't get a job at Starbucks. I'm like, I have a college degree. <laughs> I've worked in the real world. I have some experience. I have something to offer. For three months, I sat alone in, a, in our apartment waiting for my wife to come home. She was like, you need to get a job. I was like, I know. I know. You know, that, that time waiting, that time of uncertainty can be so challenging. And I remember during that three months, those were the, some of the hardest months of my life. And I, I feel like as a man and as someone who wants to work and to provide for his family, the hardest weight to lift is no weight at all. And when you've got nowhere to be and nothing to do, life can be very, very challenging. When there's uncertainty in the present and uncertainty for the future, We can wonder, God, what are you doing? And that's where Esther was. She was in a fog. She didn't know what God was doing with her life. She didn't know what God was planning for her. What do we do in the meantimes of life? How do we walk through the wilderness well? I think we can take some points from the life of Esther, of what she did. Simply at the very beginning is to say this. She was teachable. Esther chapter 2, verse 8 through 10 says this. So it came when the command and the decree of the king were heard, and many young ladies were gathered to the citadel of Susa and to the custody of Haggai, that Esther was taken into the king's palace, into the custody of Haggai, who was in charge of women. Now the young lady pleased him and found favor with him. So he quickly provided for her with cosmetics and gave her food and seven choice maidens from the king's palace. And transferred her and the maidens to the best place in the harem. Now Esther did not make known her people or her kindred. For Mordecai had instructed her that she should not make them known. First of all, during this time of uncertainty, when she doesn't understand why the events are transpiring, she did this great thing. She listened to Mordecai. Secondly, while she was in this harem, she listened to a second person, Haggai. Go to uh, chapter 2 of Esther, verses 14 and 15. In the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem, that is, the custody of Shagshagaz, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king king unless the king delighted in her, and she was summoned by name. Now when the the turn of Esther, the daughter of that guy, uh, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his daughter came in to go to the king, she did not request anything except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of women advised. And Esther found favor in the eyes of all who saw her. 
She did two great things during this time of uncertainty. She listened to Mordecai, and she listened to Haggai. You see, I think Esther had three great things working against her. She was young, she was beautiful, and in a moment, she'll become queen and she'll be successful. And with youth and beauty come pride, arrogance, and self-sufficiency. You see, those three qualities of youth, beauty, and success, we hail in America. We say, if you've achieved those three things, which is kind of odd because you can't really achieve youth, but if you achieve those three things, you are plastered across billboards, you are plastered across magazines, and everyone will celebrate you. But with those same three qualities come pride and arrogance and self-sufficiency. Oscar Wilde says, I am not young enough to know everything. Matt Chandler, who's a pastor in Dallas, uh, has said that um, he tells a story of when he visited uh, with one of the elders of the church that he now pastors. He explained to him all the problems with evangelicalism and how he personally was ready to solve all of them. And he has since apologized. (laughs) Satan himself, in Ezekiel 28, 17, trusted in his beauty. It says, your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. Proverbs 12.15 says, The way of the fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man is one who listens to counsel. Proverbs 19.20 says, Listen to the advice and accept instruction, and in the end you will be wise. One of the greatest things that Esther did during this time of uncertainty is that she remained teachable, patient, and humble. Even though she didn't know what was going on, she said, there are wiser men above me, there are wiser people around me, and I'm going to seek their advice. During my time in Florida, I called so many of my, I called my dad, I called my uncle, I called my cousin, I called all these people around me to get advice. What do I do in this midst of uncertainty? She remained teachable and humble. Didn't rely on her own skills. She waited for God's timing. She was continually listening for God. But lastly... At the right moment, God will reveal what he is trying to do all along. At the right moment, we need to recognize what God is preparing us for. As the story continues on, Haman is uh, promoted as second in command over all that Xerxes owned. And Haman was a, was a bit of an arrogant guy. And what became the normal custom for everyone to do is bow in homage to Haman. But Mordecai would not. The uncle of Esther would not bow down and pay homage to to Haman. And so Haman came up with this plan. He goes to Xerxes and says, look, there's a people that you don't like. He realized that Mordecai was a Jew and that no Jew would actually bow down and pay homage to him. So he goes to King Xerxes and says, look, there's a people that are kind of worthless. Their laws aren't like our laws. Here, I will give you a bunch of money that you can stick in your treasuries. And here's what I want to do. I just want to wipe those people off. I I just want to take them out. No big deal. And Xerxes agrees. Mordecai gets wind of this at the beginning of chapter 4, and he wails and laments this reality. Esther hears that Mordecai is wailing at the gate and doesn't know what to do, and so she sends several people uh, to find out why he is so upset. And Mordecai relays what what has happened, that Haman has set this plan in motion, that the Jewish people are going to be wiped out. But Esther is fearful. When she hears this, she responds to him with what we read earlier, which is that anyone who goes into the king's presence who has not been summoned, who does not receive the extended golden scepter, is going to be killed. 
And Mordecai responds with this. Do not think that you can escape what's going to happen to all of us. And if God, and this is what I think is great, if God does not use you, do not think that he will not provide someone else to save his people. Verse 14. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will, 14 chapter 4, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. You see, God is not worried about whether or not he can accomplish his salvation of people. What he's given Esther an opportunity for is to play a part. I saw this play out in my life. Um, it was my junior year of college, and uh, there was a guy uh, in one of our courses, our government courses, and he was the guy that looked at all of our notes, copied all of our, our material, came to all of our study sessions, but never went to class and always wanted us to help him out. Right? And it came about, we had a great conversation during one of the study sessions in which I presented the gospel to him, talked to him about Jesus. And several times later, I was just bitter at the guy because he was just ripping off our stuff. And, and he came back several times. He's like, hey, you know, I want to talk some more about that. But I'm like, yeah, yeah, whatever. A year and a half later, I, um, I'm walking down the road, and he walks across the street. He was, at the, uh, he was actually in law school at that point in time. He walks across the street. He says, hey, hey, Kevin. I didn't even remember his name. You remember my name? He goes, hey, hey, Kevin. Uh, me and my friend are having this conversation about um, the book of Isaiah and the suffering servant. Yeah, he, this guy was actually a Jew, not a believer. And, uh, and, I, and so I stood there and I answered some of his questions that he had. And he says, hey, give me a call. And he gives me his number. And I said, yeah, 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 whatever. Didn't call him back. A year later, I'm in a, um, a meeting with all of these church leaders. And uh, well, these people that are doing different outreach ministries to different places on campus. And I look over in the meeting and I see that guy. And I walk over to him and I said, hey, you're a Christian now? He looks at me and he says, I came to Christ six months ago. You blew it. <laughs> I went and sat down. The meeting went on. I, mean, I went and talked to him afterward. I said, well, okay, what happened? What, what was going on? He, he, said, he said, look, I had all these questions about Jesus. I had all these questions about who he was and what he was doing. And you didn't answer them. And so God, in his great plan brought someone else to share the gospel with them and bring them to Christ. You see, Esther has a moment. Esther has a moment right now for a great and mighty stand. And see, Hollywood knows this, that every great story has a great stand. Uh, we, we see this in the movie Braveheart, one man standing against a corrupt king. We see this in Gladiator, one man stand against a corrupt Caesar. We see this in Avatar, when one man stands against industry. Right? We see this in Toy Story 3, uh, where Woody leads his toys and friends from the clutches of Sunnyside Daycare. Right? Um, every one of them is ripping off the Bible. And this is Esther's great stand. This is the climax of the story. And her response in verse 16 of chapter 14 is this to Mordecai. Go assemble all of the Jews who are in, found in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days and, uh, and a night and a day. I and my maidservants also will fast in the same way. And thus I will go into the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. This is her great stand. This is her great moment. And in every one of these stories that we see throughout all of Hollywood, here's what's simply needed. 
To see the situation, the landscape of the environment, and it's dire. To see the solution, the need to stand and fight against one. To see the solution and to stand in the gap. You know, that's what Jesus does with us. Our situation is dire. We are lost in sin with no hope. The solution? A death for the forgiveness of sins to purchase for us new life with Him. And He needed to stand in the gap. And like our great Lord, we do the same. There is a situation in the world that everyone in the world is lost in sin, destined to death, unless someone stands and speaks. Martin Luther did this. Um, recounting back to those moments when he stood against the Catholic Church, he says this, I was fearless. I feared nothing. God can make one so desperately bold. I know not whether I'd be so cheerful now. Jim Elliot says, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. See, God is providing moments for you to stand. He has orchestrated the circumstances of your life to prepare you and to position you so that at the right moment you can speak for Him. Here's my questions for you in application. Do you see the events of history as all part of God's plan? Do you see yourself as playing an integral part in that plan? What are you doing right now to prepare yourself for those moments to stand? Are you reading your Bible? Are you prepared to give your testimony? And fourthly, are you looking for those moments? Do you see those moments right in front of you? And are you ready to act? Are they at work? Are they at home? Are they with friends? Are they with family? God is opening up moments for you to stand. I love this quote with F.B. Meyer to close. Fit yourself for God's service. Be faithful. He will presently appoint thee in some unlikely quarter in a shepherd's hut or in an artesian's cottage. God has prepared and appointed his instrument. As yet the shaft is hidden in the quiver, in the shadow of his hand. But the precise moment at which it will tell with the greatest effect, it will be produced and launched into the air. God is preparing you to stand for him. Are you using your time well? Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you so much for for Esther who although she was fearful and timid, she did not stay there. And Lord, I praise you for for men and women of faith throughout history that have stood and spoken for truth when it was difficult. Lord, I pray that we could be such a people. Father, we love you. Thank you for who you are. Give us courage. Amen.